You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Good morning, good morning. Great to see you this morning. And um, if we've not met before, my name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors. I'd love to welcome you and say it's great to have you with us. Uh, We are beginning a new study. This is our second week, uh, working through a book in the New Testament called uh, 1 Thessalonians, because there was two letters written by the Apostle Paul uh, to the church at Thessalonica, which is sort of uh, a northern province of Greece at the time of writing. It was probably written about 50 A.D., so it's one of the newest books or one of the first written books in all of uh, the New Testament. And what I'm going to do is just very briefly review uh, what we talked about last week. Then we'll look at the passage for this week. Um, if, you, if you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's one under the seat in front of you. And you can turn there to, I believe it's page 573, uh, and you'll be able to track along with us uh, as well. So last week, what we learned was that this church was formed in affliction. We read from Acts 17, and we saw how Paul and his companions went to this town, and they went to the synagogue, and Paul preached there for three weeks in a row. And he told them from the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, he told them uh, that Jesus was the Messiah that they were awaiting, and he demonstrated it from the Bible. And so some people believed, uh, the Jews there believed beyond them, uh, those who believed there. There was also some uh, Gentiles that believed. There were some particularly mentioned some uh, women of high regard and high standing in culture that became Christians as well. Well, this caused not a little stir, and the local authorities got involved. There was a mob. Uh, these new Christians were persecuted from the outset. And so Paul begins writing them in this letter and communicating, you are in God. God is in you. You are loved by God. You are chosen by God, and he is reminding them in their difficulty that God is for them. He's writing this letter to them when they are months old and not years old as a new church. So it could have been up to a year, a few months, we don't know, but it's, it's new. It's a very new church. These vulnerable Christians uh, who've become a church in challenging circumstances, and he's writing to secure them. And then this is what he says to them beginning in verse 6. So we'll read verses 6 through 10. Uh, That's the section we'll cover today. This is God's holy word. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we don't need to say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, 
who delivers us from the wrath to come. This passage, uh, in, in this passage, Paul really reviews, sort of demonstrates and reviews how God used the Thessalonians' affliction to spread the good news. That the good news of their turning to Christ is spreading. It, theirs is not a private faith. Theirs is a public faith, and it's making a difference way beyond their city. God wants them to know this is very encouraging because they're vulnerable. They're, they've come to believe in affliction. They're being resisted and persecuted. So he starts off the chapter letting them know that God loves them and God chose them. But in this section, he's letting them know, you know what? God is using you in ways that you don't even know. People that you'll never meet are talking about what God has done in your midst. And he wants them to know that though you're marginalized in your culture, the news of what Jesus has done in you is spreading. What's the news? Well, in verse 9, that you turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God. So their verbal testimony is going forth and their example is going forth. Their faith is really a public faith. And what we see in this passage is that public faith advances the gospel through the example and the words of faithful converts. That a public faith advances the gospel. There is a, a momentum and a movement of the good news through people who tell verbally about Jesus, but also who have an example that points to Christ and the words that they are speaking. Now, it spreads through faithful converts. And I intentionally use the word convert because that is what this passage describes. It is on the heels of a radical conversion... I don't want anyone to be in the dark. It is on the heels of a radical conversion uh, that they, um, that their story is told beyond them. That's the language of conversion. Verse 9, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, it is hard for us to imagine in our culture, it's hard for us to imagine how far-reaching this kind of commitment would have impacted each of these believers. To turn to God from idols. To turn to God from idols. One author wrote about this. I found this so helpful in describing the Thessalonians' conversion. Listen to these words. The remarkable thing was that the instant effect that the gospel had had At the heart of it, and this is never far from Paul's mind throughout the whole letter, was the call to worship the true God rather than idols. That was simply unheard of in Paul's day, in Paul's world. It would be like asking people in modern cities to give up cars, to give up computers, to give up phones, The gods of Greek and Roman paganism were everywhere. If you were going to plant a tree, you would pray to the relevant god. If you were going on a business trip, a quick visit to the appropriate shrine was in order. If you or your son or daughter was getting married, serious and costly worship of the relevant deity was expected. At every turn in the road, the gods were there, unpredictable possibly malevolent, sometimes at war among themselves, so that you could never do much in the way of placating them. 
making sure that you'd gotten them on your side. Into this world came three unknown Jews, Paul, Savanus, and Timothy. Into this world came three unknown Jews, telling pagans that there was one true God. Other Jews had done that. And that this God had a true son and had demonstrated this fact by raising him from the dead. Nobody had ever said that before. And people in Thessalonica, knowing from the start the risk they would be taking, turned away from their idols to the living God and discovered at the same moment suffering and joy. Suffering and joy. Thessalonica was a city that was overrun by idols. And even more recently, uh, there had begun to be the uh, common practice of worshiping the emperor as well. Uh, This was a practice that had, had gone on for some time, but was now, it had changed because they were worshiping the living Caesar. So when uh, Julius Caesar died, his uh, sort of stepson, Augustus, uh, proclaimed him a deity. When Augustus died, the Caesar following him, Tiberius, proclaimed him a deity. So now there were two Caesars which were worshipped. Well, after a while, they just began to worship the live guy as well as the dead Caesars because anyone who could command rule over most of the then-known world for them, certainly the then-sophisticated cultured world of the Greco-Roman world, anybody that could manage all that had to be a deity. So there was the confession, Caesar is Lord, and the worship of Caesar that took place where they were. Additionally, if you were in a particular trade, you were a carpenter or uh, perhaps you were some kind of artisan, maybe you were um, a farmer or maybe you were in the arts in some way, you had your own trade union, those that you gathered with who did the same thing that you did, and you had your own God. And you had priests and temples and sacrifices that, that, that uh, tied to your particular work, your particular vocation. Each trade had a patron God. And if you were in that union, you would pay tribute and sacrifice to that God. And being a part of a trade association was very important. These trade guilds, it was very important for your business to be a part of that culture. It, was, it affected all of your life. Um, it was important for business. There was God, there was a God for everything, and for everything there was a God. You know, one thing about these pagans, we can look at them as sort of superstitious. But if we'd humble ourselves for a moment, we might note that they did something better than most of us Christians do. And that is they connected all of their life to the gods. All of life was spiritual for them. Worship wasn't just a weekly gathering disconnected from the rest of life. The gods affected your work. The gods affected your family. The gods affected your fortune. They affected your health. They affected your citizenship, everything. And now they are turning from all of those false, lifeless, dead gods to worship the true and living Lord Jesus Christ. And yet we who know the true living Lord Jesus Christ can live very disintegrated lives where we worship him on Sunday, yet we see no connection to our 
finances, our health, our work, our relationship, our hobbies, our eating, our drinking, our sleeping, our entertainment. Our life. We see no connection. Yet they lived a false but truly integrated life. The gods were everywhere controlling everything. Their conversion here, their conversion changed their lives and it cost them dearly. Because leaving idolatry would affect business, it would affect your family, it would affect your civic standing, it would affect your social connections, it would affect how people viewed you in the community. And that's why they're talking about them entire provinces over in Achaia, in Macedonia. They were, by turning to Jesus, putting themselves on the margins, they were set up for affliction, and yet the Scripture here tells us they were full of joy in the Holy Spirit. Paul says, people are talking about you all over Greece. Your public faith has become a compelling example. So whether they like it or not, they're talking. They're talking. Look how their Christian life began. Verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. They heard the gospel and they became imitators of Paul and ultimately, most importantly, of the Lord. Now, it's interesting when we think about following Christ's example Uh, When we think about that, they're saying, you know, you followed our example in the Lord's. When we think of that, we might think of things like living a holy life. We might think about loving others. We might think about self-service, selfless service, rather. We might think about caring for the poor. Uh, We might think about reaching the marginalized. We might think about all kinds of things when we think about imitating Christ. And all those would be valuable and valid. But that's not what he has in mind here. When he says here, you became imitators of us and of Christ, look how he describes that imitation. You received the word in much affliction with the joy in the Holy Spirit, with joy in the Holy Spirit or the joy of the Holy Spirit. How did they imitate Jesus? They suffered with joy. That's what he says. This is the compelling example. You suffered with joy. Think about Christ, who for the joy set before him endured suffering, the suffering of the cross. When you think of being more like Jesus, is that what you imagine? When you think of the call to be conformed to the image of Christ, do you think of suffering with joy? That is, that's not the only example, but that is the primary example that he highlights in them. You received this You turned from your idols, you embraced the resistance that came with believing in Jesus, and you were full of joy. It's really a compelling picture of what the Holy Spirit did within them. When we looked at Acts 17 last week, we saw that when they first heard the good news, it was crazy. I mean, Paul was there very little time. He, he just refers to preaching three weeks is all in their synagogue. But that was enough to get the ball rolling and cause a commotion so that it says the Jews who were jealous of those who believed in Christ um, were jealous of the attention and the momentum they were developing. And so they got the riffraff, I think the biblical word is the rabble, they got the rabble together to form a mob and to just... Uh, to, to go attack the host. 
So Paul and his friends are there, and they're being hosted by a guy named Jason. And this mob just goes in, and they're ready to beat Jason, and that they can't find these Christians, who have the missionaries who come and preach. So they go down to the civil authorities, and they say, hey, this group is dangerous. Why? Because they believe in another king. They're, they're talking about King Jesus, so they are a threat to Roman rule because they don't believe in the Caesar. They believe in Jesus. And so then the, the, the local rulers are upset by that. They're very concerned about that, the text tells us. So that's what happened. It says you turn to God with much affliction. Just coming to Christ wasn't this sort of peaceful moment with sort of the music playing and, uh, you know, some mood music and us just kind of quietly giving our heart to Jesus. It's like there's a mob going on. You might get arrested. Uh, pray this prayer and the officers are at the back. They'll escort you to the prison is kind of what it was in their environment. And I'm thankful we don't have that, that we can in the quietness of our heart trust Christ. But that was their situation. And yet they found joy in it. Converted to affliction, but joy. They embrace this true calling of all believers. All believers have a calling to external opposition and inward joy, external suffering and inward peace, external difficulty and inward contentment. This is, this is the joy, the peace, the contentment God wants us to have in chaos. That's why I love this letter. It starts out, if you go to the reference in Acts 17, it starts out with chaos. But from the beginning, there is this steady peace and contentment among the people. And Jesus prepares us for this. This is what Jesus says in John 16. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. That's the testimony. That's why people are talking. Because in the midst of the chaos, they're not freaking out. They're not denying Jesus. They're not running and hiding. They're not shutting up. They're not embracing idolatry. They are saying, hey, in the world we've got tribulation, but Jesus has overcome the world. And so we will serve him while we await his return, verse 10, while we await his return because he will deliver us from the wrath that is to come. And that is enough. Knowing that, that knowing and knowing what he will do in that day is enough for us in this day. See, by imitating Jesus, they become an example. Look what it says. So it starts with imitation. There's a very good pattern here. You became imitators of us, verse 6, verse 7, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. That, those are two provinces. Macedonia is in the north, Achaia in the south. Uh, I believe in Achaia is, is where uh, like Athens is and uh, Corinth so Macedonia is above that, but they're both Greek, culturally Greek provinces, what we would think of as Greece. So they, they, uh, he says, you're an example to all the people, all the Greek people. I just love the pattern. Verse 6, you became imitators of Jesus. Verse 7, so you became an example to everybody. The fruit of becoming an imitator of Jesus in this case, which means experiencing affliction with joy, that makes them an example to other people. Their example is known throughout. It says, uh, you became an example to all the believers. Verse 8, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. 
Now, probably Paul is using a bit of hyperbole here. He's saying that the word of the Lord, what's that? That's verbal gospel witness. So Jesus died for our sins. Uh, You know, God created the world. We sinned. We fell. God promised to restore the world. God sent Jesus, who is God in the flesh. Jesus died in our place as a substitute. He rose and defeated death. And now anybody who believes in him receives eternal life, forgiveness of sin, new life. He indwells you by the Spirit as we await for him to return and renew all things. In a new heaven and new earth. That's the verbal word. That's the word of the Lord. You became imitators of us, uh, and the the not only the word of the Lord sounded forth. The word sometimes can be translated trumpeted, or even it's even translated like a thunderclap. The word thundered from you. It trumpeted from you. So there is this verbal testimony that went forth. It wasn't just you suffered with joy. You had the word of the Lord. That sounded forth from you, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So your faith is their personal story, their testimony, their experience. So what went forth from them? The gospel message and their example. These things went forth from you so that we need not say anything. You put us out of business is what he's saying. We don't need to say anything about you. Wherever we go, they have already heard about you in the gospel. So you just, you just like, we're, you, you just covered it in our place. We are Blockbuster, you are Netflix, we are not needed any longer, is what he's saying. Who needs Paul the missionary? Because there's nothing to say, everybody's heard about it. Now he's using hyperbole, uh, obviously, but he doesn't mean there's no person that doesn't know on planet Earth. But are in these two provinces. But he's just talking about the example has been so compelling and so widespread, it's so shocking that you were willing to opt out of the idolatrous system to follow some resurrected Jewish guy. You were willing to do that, or supposedly resurrected Jewish guy in their culture. You were willing to do that, and everybody's talking. And they're talking about how it's not gone well for you, and it's been costly, but they're talking about how there is this joy and peace about your life, and everyone knows about this. How encouraging is that to the Thessalonians? You're just, you, all you're aware of is that people won't buy your goods, your family won't talk to you, but let us tell you this, that they're talking about you a province away, and it's a good testimony. They're saying you're like Jesus. They have no idea that joyfully serving Christ in their little world is affecting people they will never meet. The fact that you can be an example in suffering, that, and, and someone points that out, that's one of the most shocking encouragements. I, I don't consider myself at all a good sufferer. Actually, I don't consider myself a person who's endured a lot of suffering compared to so many in our church. And when I have suffered, I, I don't necessarily wouldn't put myself up uh, as a person who suffers really well. But I have on a couple of occasions in the midst of suffering had someone say to me something like this. You've probably had something like this too if you have Christian friends and you talk openly and encourage one another. Then maybe you've heard something like this in your life. I've heard people say, hey, I know you're really going through a hard time. I know you're really suffering with X, Y, or Z. Uh, and I've been really encouraged to watch you follow the Lord in that. And I'm shocked, really. Wow, I'm shocked by that. I, I think that's the feeling they had. They would have been, really? 
everybody's being affected by this. This is just our little world, which is pretty chaotic, but everybody's being affected. They're talking about it. It's spreading. God is using this. That is so encouraging that God uses our suffering to demonstrate his power and to be a witness for him. One author described this well. He said, what's happening in Thessalonica? It's like a large rock was dropped into a still pond. There was this gospel splash into Thessalonica, and now there's this ripple effect going out from them. That's how God works. That's how God works. The ripple goes forth in two ways. It sounds forth as they talk about Jesus, and it's reflected in their faith, in their example. Both of them. It's going forth, and we need both. Word and example. Word and deed. By the way, this is God's primary means for spreading the good news. Praise God for people like Paul, who wasn't really out of work. He planted a few more churches this is, and wrote a few more letters. This is maybe his first letter or one of his first. So he did a little bit more after this. It, he kept going. There's plenty to do. But this is the primary way the gospel spread so that Christianity spread throughout the Roman world and became really a dominant influence ultimately. It spread because one person was changed Their life was changed by Jesus. They looked different. They navigated difficulty differently. People talked about that, saw that, asked questions about that. They shared their faith in Jesus Christ, and the ripples kept going. That's God's plan. Yes, he raises up preachers and missionaries, and in this case, uh, in the New Testament, apostles. Yes, he uses these individuals. Thank the Lord for that. But typically, it, they receive the message, but it's, it just goes out through the masses. This is the way that the gospel spreads. And in this case, it doesn't spread through Thessalonian prosperity. It wasn't the prosperity gospel that went out and everybody said, give me some of that. Whoa, you got blessed with that? You confessed and you got blessed let me in on that mess. You know, let me in on that. That's not what happened. They're suffering. People are attracted not to external physical blessing, but to unexplainable joy and suffering. That's what the story that went past. They weren't gossiping about the new possessions they got. They were gossiping about how can this be? Did you hear what happened to them? This should be very encouraging for us. spreads a unique picture of the power of the gospel spread through this little church. One author named John Byron wrote of this, the church which passes on the gospel must embody it. Boy, that's true. That's what he's saying. Word and your faith, your example. The church which passes on the gospel must embody it. No church can spread the gospel with any degree of integrity, let alone credibility, unless it's been visibly changed by the gospel it preaches. We need to look like what we're talking about, end quote. I read that and I thought, That's, that is public faith. It's talking and it's looking like what you talk about. It's telling the gospel and it's being changed people in all our brokenness, all our weakness, all our failures, you know, humbly repenting and apologizing when we get it wrong. But it's a people that, that correspond to the message. 
that if we say Jesus changes lives, it shouldn't be a shocker that someone will say, well, how come he hadn't changed yours? We need to look like what we're talking about. It's living out the good news so that others can't help but notice something is different. Something is countercultural. Something doesn't look like all the religion around us that we are familiar with in this culture, in ours, a secular culture. I'm going to make a couple of bullet points for application and we're done. Normally I make a some, I usually take an idea and try to develop it out, but I'm going to leave you with three bullet points sort of as application and let you flesh it out is what I think we can apply from this passage. Here's the first point that I trust will encourage some people in the room today who came in discouraged. Righteous suffering doesn't hinder mission. It fuels it. Righteous suffering doesn't hinder mission. It fuels it. If you're suffering... As a believer in Jesus, there is certain suffering that you're suffering because you're an idiot. We do something foolish. We do something. We pick a fight and someone gets mad at us and go, oh, man, we're taking one for the Lord there. No, we're not taking anything for the Lord right there. We need to go humble ourselves, ask forgiveness for being a jerk. And then, you know, so sometimes we suffer because we're foolish. But righteous suffering like theirs doesn't hinder mission. It fuels it. The For the Thessalonians, their affliction is a platform for the gospel. A platform raises something up so that it's visible. Their suffering is the, and their, ultimately their response to the suffering, that's the platform for the gospel. That's the hearing they get. The hearing they get is they are responding with joy. Your suffering doesn't disqualify you for God's mission. In fact, it may be the very thing God wants to use. It may be the very reality of your recognition of your need for God and the humility that that causes that gets someone else's attention. It may be the fact that even in the midst of the difficulty that people know you have that difficulty, know you're struggling, yet they hear you whistling, metaphorically, they hear the joy in your life, they observe it, and it it does not compute. How, How can those things go together. So oftentimes we can think, I'm on the sidelines while I walk through this difficulty. I'm walking through a difficulty, so I can't really be used by the Lord. So I'm going to be over here on injured reserve. I'm going to get healed up. And once I'm back restored and better, then I can get in the game. And that's the wrong way of thinking. If the Thessalonians did that, they're, they're in affliction. The very point of this passage is that in, it's your affliction that that's what caused the good news to spread as you imitated Jesus and had joy in your suffering. So, having joy in suffering, that's a huge topic. It's not as simple as me just making a few points here. I know that. It's very difficult to be joyful in suffering. The point I'm wanting to make is that to embrace the idea that it is the very relational, financial, physical um, suffering that you're enduring, mental It's the very emotional, the very suffering that you're enduring today that the Lord wants to meet you in and strengthen you in. He may want to deliver you from it as a testimony to his power, or he may want you to walk through it with joy as a testimony to his power, but he wants to reveal himself either way in your suffering. Number two, public faith means we're to look like what we talk about. We need to be talking appropriately. We need to be giving a verbal witness for Christ appropriately. 
Um, but, our, but our lives need to look like what we're talking about. This is the best way for the gospel to spread. And, and let me make one point. I make this kind of point pretty regularly that would not have been a point that Paul would have had in view. The way our example spreads and is broadcast today, it often is broadcast in our digital life more than in our analog life, in our online life more than our real life. And I was thinking about this. If someone were to look at my social media feed, if they were to look at what pictures I post, if they were to look at what comments I make on other people's blogs, on other people's uh, social media, um, if they were to look at what links that I pass on or retweet or whatever the case may be, would they conclude that he or she that imitates Jesus? Would the, would the story be, this is someone who imitates Jesus? Because the person who imitates Jesus is then an example to others, is what the text says. You, you became imitators of Christ, and now your example has spread if someone will look how I, how I govern myself, how I communicate. See, the danger is many of us don't realize that's public. It's way more public than what I say to someone when the two of us are in a room. And yet, sometimes we'll say stuff on social media that we would never say face-to-face to an individual with two people in the room where only two people could hear it. But now we will say it, uh, and we will say it, we will voice our uh, you know, instant, top of the, off the top of our head thoughts sometimes, we'll voice those for everyone to see. And so our example is broadcast so much more quickly and so farther. So here people are talking about an example, but we have the ability to convey, transmit an example that is uh, much quicker than would have been in Paul's day. May God raise our awareness that our example matters in all aspects of our lives. This is one life that I think some people, especially if you're younger, you've just been raised in a generation that if you're a digital native, this is just a given for you. You don't know how, you don't know that there was like people that lived without an online life. Some of us in the room lived without an online life. So that can be a good thing because the gospel can spread in ways and farther and faster than it could have perhaps in the past. So it can be a tool that's very helpful. Uh, I'm not saying that every social media post needs to be a Bible verse or something like that. Sometimes that's fairly obnoxious, actually, if that's not who you are in real life. That looks insincere, too. So sometimes I'm not just saying that. But I'm just saying we need to think about I'm, I'm an example that I am representing Christ, that would anybody detect I'm different, that I'm like Jesus, or at least I want to be, at least I want to be like him in my life. Public faith means we are to look like what we talk about in real life and online. Number three, and finally, so righteous suffering doesn't hinder mission, it fuels it. Public faith means we're to be like what we talk about. And number three, turning to God always means turning from idols. This is the definition of conversion in verse 9. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Turning is a word that, that we would call that repentance. And serving the living and true God, that, that is ultimately re- represents belief. This is faith and repentance that's being described. 
Turning to God always means turning away from idols. You can't have both. If you did have both, there would be no affliction in Thessalonians 1. There'd be no problem. If you're like us, that's not a big deal. There'd be no problem. And there'd also be nothing to talk about in Achaia because they're like everybody else. It is the very fact that they turn from idols to God. That's what creates the story. That's what creates the testimony. That's what makes them distinct. And it's worth our asking, have we turned from our idols? Are we distinct from our culture? Or are we uh, blended in completely with our culture? Now, obviously, there's much in our culture that we don't necessarily differ from. We go to work like everybody else. You know, we enjoy uh, much of the same things, music or sports or um, things that other people enjoy. So it's like we're different in every area. But in the areas where our culture has idols, for them it would have been the Greco-Roman idols and it would have been political idols. So are we free from political idolatry? Are we free from the idols of our culture, which are not statues, but in this culture are things like our image, money, success, a certain view of success. We all want to be successful, what the Bible calls fruitful. We all want that. But a certain image, a certain image of family, a certain image that is respected by the values of a wealthy Western suburban culture. Idols like consumerism. I am what I own. My significance is is in where I live, what I drive, and what I wear. That is where I find my meaning and where I feel good about myself. Those kinds of idols. Are we free from the idols of our culture? Idols like classism, looking down on those below us. Turning to Jesus means we repent of classism. Ageism, we, we advocate Uh, For the young, the young is the ultimate. Old and forgotten, young and you matter. Other cultures aren't that way, but ours is. Ageism, racism. I'm more comfortable around people like me who look like me and have the same background. That mentality, are we repenting of that? Because if we are, we will be pursuing relationship and ministry and friendship with people regardless of class, age, race. We won't be consuming for significance. We won't be working to develop an image but for the glory of God and to serve others. We won't be chasing success uh, financially at the expense of everything else. You see what I'm saying? We have idols to turn from as well. Theirs were statues, but they're still seductive because that was the mindset. If you're going to have a crop, you better get the rain god, whoever that is, on your side. If you're going to be successful, you better have a certain kind of family and your kids better do certain activities and you better live in a certain neighborhood. We have the same thing. It's just a little bit more sophisticated, but equally dark and evil. Maybe more dark at some levels because it is Uh, so much more subtle. And the enemy is subtle. So turning to God always means turning from idols. It means that we identify the idols uh, around us that we're susceptible to. 
And we repent and we say, Lord, make us different so that those things aren't, so that we're different from those things, not to just be different from those things, but to be like Jesus. You can see how a person who repented of those things, who used money as a tool to honor the Lord, to give, to serve others, who used family as not, uh, you know, something to platform, but a family that was something to honor the Lord together with, to grow in Christ together, to be a family under him. People who viewed success uh, in terms of relationship and service and sacrifice and not possessions. People who didn't live for the love of other people and the respect of other people, but they lived to love and serve others rather than just currying their favor. People who didn't just consume things for their own enjoyment, but who used things for the glory of God without attaching their hearts to their possessions. People who related across class, age, gender, culture, lifestyle, religion, preference, just related to other people. You could see how a person like that would look pretty different and how somebody might engage in holy gossip saying they look different. What happened to them? That's a concern I have for my life. And would anybody ever say he looks different, he acts different, he lives differently? And would anybody say that about our church? That's the goal. That's what happened in Thessalonians. That's public faith. It's God advancing the gospel through the spoken word and through lives that are countercultural, that look different, that look like, hey, they turned from the system. They're not in the system. The idolatry system, they turned from that and they're following some other God. This risen Jesus, that is the goal. Righteous suffering doesn't hinder your mission, it fuels it. Public faith means we're to be like what we talk about. Turning from God always means turning from idols. May God grant us grace to be the people he's called us to be. Let's pray. Father, I just confess that it is so hard to see the idols that my heart runs towards. It's just easy to walk out of here in this city and just like a fish not recognize the water we swim in. Would you first of all give us an alertness not to judge any person but to judge our own hearts at the various storylines we're buying into, the lies we're buying into in this culture. All the externals that we're drawn to. Please help us open our eyes convict us and grant us Lord repentance we pray Lord we want to be a part of your mission but we realize the mission is compromised when we're like the world we pray that you would help us to live differently personally in private in our families in our workplaces with our neighbors in our, in our online lives. God, we just pray that you would help us to, to walk out of public faith. And when we fail, help us to take responsibility and ask forgiveness and thus continue to walk out of public faith where word and deed communicate. Jesus is alive and the Spirit is granting us strength. Lord, for those suffering in the room, I pray that you would encourage today. Bring great encouragement that suffering is a tool to platform your glory, your strength, and even a gospel witness. Lord, there are those in the room whose most effective witness will be through their joyful 
attitude in suffering. Lord, that might be the best witness we ever offer. I just pray that you would grant faith, that you would grant opportunities for us to tell of your wonderful works and to sing your sweet name for those who would watch while we are suffering. Help us, O Lord. And I pray for each of our lives to be a light in the darkness, to make a difference as we await your return. Pray that our church, that you would, as we walk out of here in just a moment, that we would, that we would invade the places that you've called us, neighborhoods, workplaces, parks, all the places we go, coffee shops, Lord, the places we go, soccer fields, the things we do. Lord, I pray that we would go into those as those who are different, changed by you. And that our lives would provoke notice, not because of who we are, but because the Holy Spirit is working evidently, even when we don't see it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.